beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. And I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Today's episode is brought to you by my monthly-ish newsletter called The Secret Posts. I started The Secret Posts years ago when I was blogging regularly, and I wanted a place to connect with readers that wasn't quite so public as the blog or social media, somewhere I could say the things that I didn't want to come up in a Google search. In The Secret Posts, I always include a list of my recent book recommendations as well as sharing when I don't love a book, which isn't something that I usually post anywhere else. I link out to the things I'm buying and wearing and watching and listening to. It's all of my recommendations condensed into one email, as well as personal stories and photos that I only share with Secret Post subscribers. Now, if you are already a Secret Post subscriber, maybe you're scratching your head because I haven't sent out a new issue in a few months. It's true. Launching this podcast and all of the travel and craziness in our life this year, it means that I've slacked on the secret posts, but they're coming back. I miss them. People are asking about them. And so I am bringing back the secret posts with a vengeance, and I want to make sure that you are on the list. So to sign up for the secret post emails, you can go to 
10thingstotellyou.com slash secret posts. I'll also link to it in the show notes, and I will link to it on all of my social media channels. But if you have a good memory, you can go straight to the sign up at 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret posts. And the next edition is coming out soon. I promise. So today's episode is on a topic that means a lot to me, something I don't think people talk about enough. Even in these days of the overshare, there's still not a lot of honest conversation on this topic, and that is mental health. Specifically for me, what I'm going to talk about today is mostly anxiety. I'm going to share what anxiety looks like for me, my coping mechanisms, both the healthy and the unhealthy, because I have both. My hope is that by sharing my own story about lifelong anxiety is that you will be able to share more about how it affects you, or maybe it will bring some understanding about a loved one who struggles with anxiety. The things I share today can be a jumping off point for conversation, or you can also just share the episode and say, this is what it's like for me. Or share it with someone to ask, is this what it's like for you? Understanding on both sides around our mental health. May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month. What does that exactly mean? I'm never quite sure how legit these awareness campaigns are. But actually, Mental Health Awareness Month has been acknowledged here in the U.S. since 1949. It was started by the Mental Health American Organization. Also... Now, it is a good time for me to remind everyone that I am not a doctor. I have absolutely no medical education. This podcast episode is not, absolutely not, to be taken as mental health advice or medical advice. This is just my own experience, and it should be taken as just a person sharing their human experience and nothing more. So I have 10 things I'm going to talk to you about in regards to anxiety. Number one, anxiety is a broad word and it can show up in different ways in different stages of life. I think there are known things that can trigger it, genetics and hormones and trauma, but sometimes it can feel like there is no rhyme or reason for developing anxiety. The Webster definition of anxiety leaves a lot to be desired, honestly. It says, it's a feeling or worry, nervousness, or unease. Now, this does not really cover what mental health anxiety feels like. It's not worry in the traditional sense, as in you're worried about the bad weather or you're worried when your kids stay out too late or anything that feels like substantiated reason to have some concern. Anxiety, in my body, it doesn't feel like worry. It feels like dread. It feels like doom. It feels like something terrible is going to happen at any moment, and you are the only one who knows about it, and therefore, you're the only one who can stop this impending thing. Now, it doesn't always feel exactly like that, but to classify it as simply worry, as in, something that will be alleviated as soon as you know everything's okay, that word doesn't cut it. You can't just say to someone who is experiencing true anxiety, don't worry, everything's fine. The definition of anxiety in terms of psychiatry is closer. 
a nervous disorder characterized by a state of excessive uneasiness and apprehension, typically with compulsive behavior or panic attacks. So that definition brings a little more light to it, right? Excessive uneasiness, often paired with compulsive behavior. And for me, I can convince myself that my compulsive behavior is the only thing that's keeping the bad thing from happening. That's why I can be very repetitive in my thoughts and actions or why I'm doing things like that. From the outside, it looks almost superstitious. That's the compulsive behavior. And the panic attacks, those come along with anxiety almost as if you're a computer shorting out. Like when you get to such a level of anxiety in your brain or in your body, it glitches. You have reached max capacity and it's like a frozen computer or the spinning beach ball of death. You need a reset. This is not to make light of panic attacks. They are terrible to live with. They can be very scary, but they are telling you something. Okay, so that is number one. That is our broad overview of what I mean in this podcast when I use the term anxiety. Number two, my anxiety started when I was really young, probably almost like toddler age, according to my parents. I was very, very fearful at a very young age before I can even remember it. And again, there is that difference between anxiety being called worry or nervousness, because when my anxiety symptoms started, I wasn't developed enough to be worried. I was a child. I was scared. That's a much better word to describe what my anxiety looked like as a child. I was scared. I was just incredibly fearful that something bad was going to happen all the time. So when I was probably three-ish, and this actually went on into adulthood, I started pulling my hair out at the root. I would pull at it so much that I developed bald spots on my little head. Pulling on my hair was soothing to me like a child might suck their thumb or something. And then when it would start to come out in clumps, that also felt good to me. Self-harm is really hard to explain from the inside out, but there was a kind of relief to pulling my hair out. Though afterwards, of course, you're left with the evidence on your body of your mental struggle. The other things that were happening to my body when I was a child is that I would get horrible mouth sores, like canker sores all throughout my mouth. When you get a little bit older, you're told that these sores are stress-induced, but it is pretty hard to look at a second grader and see what she could be stressed about. But my little body was under duress all the time. Childhood anxiety is something I've talked about publicly for years, and I always end up hearing from parents of anxious children, wondering what to do with their very scared kiddo. Now, I grew up in the 80s in Oklahoma, so I was not treated medically in any way. I think my parents saw it as an inevitable genetic thing and also just part of my personality, who I was. Also, even then, I was really high-functioning, so while I had a lot of inner turmoil, it wasn't keeping me from going to school, or it wasn't affecting our family much as a whole. Now, chicken or the egg scenario, was I high-functioning because my parents did not coddle my anxiety or give it any power, if you will, 
Or was I already high-functioning and they didn't need to stop down over my mental health? I don't know. I definitely could have benefited from therapy. There were times when medication probably could have been called for, but it was a different time. It was a different culture. These days, there are a lot more resources to help your anxious kids. If it were me, I would start with a pediatrician if there were concerns. My number one need when I was an anxious child was to feel safe. It's just a human need, I suppose, but some of us, we need extra doses. Number three. So I got older into teenagerdom and early adulthood. My anxiety symptoms grew a little bit. I still pulled out my hair. I still got the mouth sores, but I started getting migraines, which are really quite paralyzing if you've ever had any kind of migraine. And in high school, I had my first panic attack, which was a racing heart with sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside. It is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. Very shallow breath, being unable to take in a full breath and racing thoughts like someone had pressed fast forward on your brain and you cannot find the stop button. The first time this happened, I thought I was having a medical event. I thought it was a heart attack or something. And indeed, people do often go to the ER or the urgent care with a panic attack or other symptoms of extreme stress and anxiety If you've never had it before, you might be reluctant to accept that that's what it is. For me, it is the epitome of the strength of the mind-body connection because something is really happening in your body. You're sweating, you're shaking. These are things you cannot control. And it can be hard to believe that it's mental because in that moment, it's so much more than that. It has become physical. Some of the coping skills that I developed when I was young was bouncing a ball. I bounced my ball. I would do this for hours outside alone. There was something really therapeutic about bouncing a ball rhythmically outside. Alone time in general is a necessity for me then and now. Part of that is hardwired. I'm an introvert who prefers quiet and lots of noise and lots of people can be really overstimulating. It will take my anxiety levels up especially if it's prolonged, like after a weekend trip or going to Disneyland all day or something. And when you're young, you don't always have 
control over your environment and control over whether it's loud or busy or whatever. So that was sometimes a struggle when I was a kid. I would hide or try and sit by myself or just find little pockets of peace wherever I could. I enjoyed social events. I still do, but I can get maxed out. And when you're a teenager or in college, for example, you're definitely not a great regulator of yourself. You don't want to miss out on things, even when it's the things, the busy schedule, the overstimulation that is contributing to your meltdown. Another incredible coping mechanism for me when I was young, especially, is sleep. I always required more sleep than my friends. And even today, my sleep levels greatly impact my mental health. Too much sleep can look like depression, of course, so you do have to pay attention to that. But getting extra sleep, especially in a time of stress, is almost as effective as medication for me. I cannot say enough about the sleep and rest connection to mental health. It feels like a vastly overlooked tool for treatment. I think it plays an enormous role in not only our mental health, but our contentment and our happiness levels. Sleep can be the key. So that's what anxiety looked like for me as I grew in a few of the coping mechanisms that I learned naturally. Remember, I didn't have anyone to teach me any tools, so I just went with what worked consciously, but sometimes unconsciously, which brings me to number four, unhealthy coping mechanisms. The not so great things that humans turn to when they are extremely stressed and full of anxiety or depressed or in an obsessive compulsive loop, those things are sometimes obvious. Overeating, drinking too much alcohol, drugs, wild behavior, seeking out relationships with equally unhealthy people. That kind of destructive behavior is a red flag. For myself, I know that things have gotten to a bad spot when I am drinking and eating way, way, way too much sugar. Dr. Pepper and sweets are my go-to choices, but not just as a treat or as an occasional thing, but like obsessive consumption of these things. I know things aren't going great when I start hiding what I'm eating and drinking. I still pull my hair out, even as an adult, although I've spent a lot of time working on that one, so it's not as common for me. But the unhealthy behaviors that I want to point you towards today are a little less obvious than those known ones. They are things that you might not even clock as being related to your anxiety levels. And again, this is not even close to an exhaustive list, just a few things that have come up in my life. The first is overscheduling and being busy and taking on more than is humanly possible. I know that I am not doing well when my schedule is jam-packed. You might think that my schedule is jam-packed and then I start not doing well, but that is not always the case. Sometimes it's the other way around. When my anxiety is high or I'm deeply sad or stressed about something that I'm basically avoiding, I will start cramming in activities and obligations and dinner with friends and play dates and family days and travel and And, 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 I'm putting a million things on my calendar. 
either to avoid feeling my feelings or I'm running away from the idea that doom is just around the corner and you have to carpe diem, make all the memories, say yes to every opportunity, working from a place of we're all going to die every single minute, we have to do everything. From the outside, I know that people have perceived me as very productive, with a very full life and competent and capable in all the positive ways that those words mean. But I know, because I'm living it, that there's a tipping point from being efficient to being manic. This is my number one unhealthy coping mechanism, and it plays out in a number of unpleasant ways. Because while the people around me might benefit from my crazy level of productivity, while I'm being this way, I act generally angry or controlling, or angry and controlling. A lot of these types of behaviors are about control, right? Like if you can control everything, then nothing bad will happen. If you can keep the world spinning on the strength of you holding it all together, then it can't fall apart, right? The unnamed bad thing can't happen if you are in control. That's what it feels like. But if someone else is in control, or if, God forbid, everything is out of control, then who knows what horrors await. It's silly to say it out loud like that because we all know in our rational minds that most everything is actually out of control most of the time. But still, the high-functioning anxious person will whisper to themselves that they can fix or stop or stave off the next big bad thing if they just Try hard enough. Number five, I lived with the particular type of anxiety that I've described. I lived with that for nearly 30 years before something drastically changed. And the thing that drastically changed was that I had children, my babies. And the intense hormonal changes that came with pregnancy and then postpartum, along with the life changes that come with being a parent, lack of sleep, worry for your little baby, that all kicked my anxiety into the highest of gears. And I know many women who hadn't really experienced anxiety until they were parents. And then it just throws everyone's mental health game for a loop. It really can. Postpartum anxiety can look like a lot of things. It can look like anger. It can look like depression. It might be depression. It can look like fear that you're going to harm someone. I really, really, really wish that I had talked to my OB or my pediatrician more about the symptoms I experienced after childbirth. Because I had a history of anxiety, I thought that I had it handled. I thought that I knew all there was to know that I could just power through, and I was miserable. I was not in a good way during the early years of parenthood, and it just doesn't have to be that way. I'd also bought into the lie of, this is part of it, you just don't sleep and you feel a little crazy, this is parenthood, get used to it. But no one really has a barometer for it the first time, so what's to define feeling a little crazy? How much is too much sleep deprivation? 
My second child, my son, he had some sleep problems starting when he was about one. My husband was working a lot and I was solo parenting a lot. And I fell into the depths of extreme sleep deprivation and it was mind-numbingly terrible. I had scary and awful thoughts sometimes. Other times I was like a zombie. I didn't have much thought at all. I was just barely making it through each day doing the very basics for the three of us. And that was even after I had started writing and speaking about my lifetime of anxiety, which is to say that I should have known better. Even someone who knows the signs of a mental health struggle, still, I thought I could just power my way through it. I lost time and precious memories to Alara who was gutting it out. And if I could go back to those years, I would have asked for help sooner. I know that there's a lot of mamas out there listening, and I know that a lot of you are silently struggling. You believe that these are just the hard years, or you have people around you who expect you to suck it up. And what is supposed to be a joyful time can become a white knuckle time. If this is you, Know that it does not have to be this way. You do not have to pretend like everything's fine. Number six. My children were two and four when I reached a breaking point with my mental health. Like I already said, I was extremely, extremely sleep deprived. It had been about a year since my baby had slept through the night. He would wake up between two and five times a night for a very long time. And also in our life, we had some extenuating circumstances, like everyone does, life stuff. We had loved ones, plural, who were really ill, a dear friend who had passed away. The year had just held a lot of stresses. And we were at the park one day, my husband Jeff and I and our two kids, we were spending a weekend day at the park. We were riding the carousel on this beautiful spring day, and I couldn't stop crying. I just couldn't stop the tears from running down my face. Nothing had specifically happened. We hadn't argued. There was no precipitating event, but we were on this carousel and I was scared. I felt scared. I felt sad. I was too tired to even stop the crying from happening, to try and hide it. I literally could not stop the tears on my face. And on that carousel, while it was going around and around, this is not a metaphor, by the way, this is actually a literal story. On that carousel, I made the decision to get help. I remember it really clearly. My personal tipping point after all these years, after all this internal struggle, my personal tipping point was being unable to spend a few hours in the park with my family. Number seven, this was the beginning of seeking out a lot of different forms of health for myself. But the first thing I did, the only thing I could think of to do at the time was to call a therapist. I decided to start therapy. I had never been to therapy before in my life. This was a monumental decision. I didn't even know it was so monumental at the time because you don't know what you don't know. 
But asking for help with my anxiety, it opened up doors in my spirit, in my heart, in my life that I did not even know were closed. Making that phone call and surrendering the idea that I had to do all of this on my own was the first step to managing my mental health and moving towards a much better place. I could do a whole episode about therapy, just about therapy. In fact, I might actually do that in a few months. But talk therapy has been instrumental in me becoming a better mom, wife, friend, and human. I started therapy outlining my childhood anxiety and all my current outside stresses, and I was hoping for some immediate relief, like it would be like taking a pill or something, and that's just not exactly how therapy works. It's a little bit of a long game, and that doesn't have to mean years and years, but you just can't expect immediate success in therapy. In fact, in some cases, it might feel worse before it feels better. Digging deep into your own stuff, into your pain, into your decisions, it can kind of suck, (laughs) truthfully. But once you move through the muddiest parts, you cannot believe the freedom on the other side of self-awareness. I learned for the first time at age 35 what some of my anxiety triggers were. Here I was thinking I'd been doing great on my own all this time, and I had been, honestly, with what I had to work with, but my therapist taught me some really basic things about my anxiety, and she gave me immediate tools for dealing with my anxiety. And facing some of my stuff, everybody has stuff, facing some of that stuff relieved some of my anxiety that had been there for decades. It's like it had gotten trapped in my psyche. And working through it with a therapist alleviated it. Therapy is hard work. You have to take ownership of your own mistakes and misperceptions. But you also, with a professional, you gain insight into other people's choices and behaviors. And instead of just flailing around in life in confusion or sadness or hurt, there is this third party there guiding you to see what you've missed for better or worse. Of course, therapists are not gods. They are humans. But a good one will be objective and will also be for you and for your health and for your best life. They have no other agenda. The therapist is for you. I just recently finished a book about therapy. I'm telling everyone to read this one. It's been one of my favorites of the year so far. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Now, partly it's just a great read. It's enjoyable and funny and sad, but also it gives you a peek into what it's like to go to therapy. It's a memoir. It's very well done. Lori Gottlieb is a therapist who went through a hard time and she had to start seeing a therapist. So therapist, seeing a therapist. I get DMs all the time about starting therapy because I talk about it online so often. And I think if you're therapy curious or nervous about it, maybe you should talk to someone is a great book with so much insight about the benefits of therapy. And while it's also a good story, so you're kind of, you know, it's an easy read. 
But because I get so many questions about therapy whenever I post about it, I'm going to answer some quick questions here. The logistics of finding a therapist were this. I knew a woman in my mommy and me music class that I went to every single week. I knew she was a therapist and we were just acquaintances. We were not even friends, but we lived in the same neighborhood and I felt comfortable enough to email her and ask for recommendations for therapists in the area. She wrote back with three names and I called the first one. That is as easy as it gets, folks, but I know that it is not that easy for a lot of people. I live in a city, Los Angeles, where going to therapy is super normal. There was no stigma for me to ask her for recommendations, no stigma for her to reply. In fact, before all of this, I'd had friends over the years offer up their therapist contact information. But truth be told, I probably would not have asked a friend if I could have avoided it, not because I wouldn't want them to know I was going, but maybe at the time back then, I wouldn't have wanted to see the same therapist that my friends was was seeing. So if I hadn't had the mommy and me acquaintance, I probably would have asked a doctor, either my OB or pediatrician, my general practitioner. Asking for recs from someone is my first suggestion. But if that is not an option for you, The website psychologytoday.com helps you find therapists in your area. You can sort by the type of therapist you want. I know that a lot of people have used psychologytoday.com to find a good and reputable therapist. Therapy can be expensive, so much so that it can be cost prohibitive. So look into your insurance to see what and if it covers And if you're close to or part of a university system or a hospital or other such organization, sometimes there are services available that you might not know about unless you inquire. There is definitely a mental health crisis in our country. There is also a healthcare crisis. So when I suggest therapy, I am not blindly tossing out this suggestion in dealing with anxiety and depression. However, If it is in your budget at all, or it is available to you through some avenue, I highly, highly recommend therapy if you're struggling. It is one of my life regrets that I didn't start sooner. There are seasons of my life that would have been infinitely better if I had had mental health guidance. Number eight told you about my childhood, early adulthood, and the years when I had babies. I want to tell you what my anxiety looks like these days, right now. I am nearly 40 years old. My children are now seven and nine. I've done a lot of work on myself spiritually and mentally and even physically in the last few years to get to a healthier place in my life. And yet, I still have anxiety. I often have intense fear that my husband or children are going to die. This will keep me awake at night. It will cause me to burst into tears sometimes. It's a dread that I will carry around with me in my stomach, in my chest, like I'm just waiting for that phone call to come in at any second. Not all the time, just sometimes. When I'm having a lot of anxiety, sometimes my hands shake. 
Sometimes I cannot complete a yawn or I can't sneeze all the way. My body won't release even in sort of normal bodily functions. I still get migraines. Though thankfully that one actually has lessened in the last few years. I still overschedule when I'm anxious and almost every single day I have to stop some sort of looping thought. Looping thoughts are when you go over and over something in your mind obsessively. I will loop on my to-do list or on a conversation or on a travel itinerary. Looping thoughts aren't like normal thoughts where you might obviously think about your to-do list or revisit a conversation in your head. Looping is like when a record gets stuck and it just repeats the same phrase over and over and over. You're not double-checking yourself. You're just looping. Sometimes I will make a point to my husband when we're talking about something, and then I will just keep making the same point over and over and over. I don't even change the words always. I literally just repeat myself. I will do this in my brain all day if I'm having high anxiety. This can be exhausting. My anxiety shows up in my body in lots of ways. I get a rash on my chest that comes and goes, sort of depending on my anxiety level. I have aches and pains. My joints will hurt. That can be tied to my anxiety. Like really check in with your body and the way it feels. A lot of times these things, even if they're little, your skin, your joints, they will talk to you. They will tell you if something is going on. Number nine. Through therapy and age, I have found healthier coping mechanisms that make living with anxiety easier. I've already told you about my number one and most important priority, sleep. Sleep is so key. If you take nothing else from learning about how to cope with your anxiety, please take sleep as my number one recommendation. Now listen, life is life. A person cannot always get a full night's rest. Just this month, in fact, I was traveling and I went to a concert and a girls weekend and no way was my head hitting the pillow before midnight during that trip. But I have to be realistic about it. And I know that I really cannot do that for multiple nights in a row without paying a price. I try like 90% of the time to have good sleep habits. And when I know there are going to be exceptions for an event or a weekend, then I have to build in rest days for the time following. It's not a perfect system. Some of this is just like maturity and aging, but it's not something I play around with either. I have lived with panic attacks and I have lived with breakdowns when I'm in a season without sleep and I don't want to do that anymore. The second most important thing is moving my body. Again, with the body, I know. Now listen, I am not a cardio girl. I am not suddenly going to take up running marathons. (laughs) But I've learned a lot about the mind-body connection, and it is so important to move stress and anxiety and pain through your body and not let it get trapped there. This is so important. I'm really speaking to you fellow mamas out there. As a completely gross gender generalization, I think men understand this about the body more instinctually than women do, or culture has taught them this when they were young. 
but we have to learn to move our bodies. It does not have to be traditional exercise. It can be a dance party in the kitchen. It can be 10 minutes on the trampoline. It can be jumping jacks followed by ninja gigs. I I do all of those things, by the way, plus Pilates. A book on this particular topic relating stress to our bodies and our mental health that I've read recently, also recommending a lot recently, is called Burnout by Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski. I really recommend it. I will make sure and link to it in the show notes because it talks a lot about how to move stress and anxiety through your body. I also meditate. I'm not great at doing this on my own. I've been using the Headspace app for a few years now. I really love it. Meditation is wonderful for anxiety, especially if you get into a good habit with it. Another thing I do that might be too specific to me, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I build in transition time between activities during my day. I realized at some point that I get grumpy and shaky and anxious when I am back to back to back doing stuff, like a ton of errands and then ending at a school sporting event. Like that kind of day makes me really anxious. I am better when I can build in 15 or 20 minutes of transition time, either in the car if I get somewhere early or after we get home, but before I need to start dinner or even just between working and then moving into family mode, I need a long runway of transition time. During those minutes, I might read a book or scroll my phone or meditate or just stare into space. It doesn't really matter. I, I just need the transition time. It's not always feasible, of course, but I try to be mindful of my day like this. When I am go, go, going for hours or days at a time, I just don't do well. I used to think it was high maintenance to say, hey, I need some time. But it's the difference between being seen as high maintenance or being seen as a chronically anxious person. And I will take being seen as high maintenance all day. Number 10. The last thing that I want to say about anxiety is the same thing that I say on all of these shows. Sharing of yourself lets the light in. Talking about your mental health, whatever that may be, with someone you trust is the first step in wholeness. Maybe that first step for you might be sharing it with yourself. Acknowledging to yourself in your journal or even just in your head, acknowledging that you're struggling or that you could be doing better. Taking the blinders off to the triggers and the behavior that isn't serving you. I started talking about my anxiety years before I actually started truly treating it. But I'm not sure that one would have happened without the other. Never, ever, ever on this podcast am I encouraging you to share your tenderest places with the internet or with someone who doesn't have your best interest in mind. Sharing about your mental health is best done in a trust tree. But understanding and then sharing this part of yourself, it will make a difference. I hope this episode has made a difference. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. 
You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10thingstotellyou. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.